You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hello, and welcome to Next on Washington Post Live, where we take a closer look at rising changemakers from the Hill to Hollywood and everywhere in between. I'm Helena Andrews Dyer, a pop culture reporter here at The Post. And today, my guest is the breakout star of the Netflix mega hit, Queen Charlotte, A Bridgerton Story. But before she was the queen's confidant, Arsima Thomas was giving TED Talks and creating her own women's health app. She's here today to tell us all about her career path and her pivot. Arsima Thomas, welcome to Washington Post Live. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so excited. I'm gonna like take off my reporter hat for two <laughs> seconds and say, Wowzers, loved Queen Charlotte, loved you as Lady Danbury. I'm going to put it back on. And we are going to get into this role. So for the millions of fans of Bridgerton, the previous two seasons, Lady Danbury, the elder Lady Danbury, has been a huge standout. We know her as a woman who takes no prisoners, is so self-possessed and so in charge, right? I'm going to use a term that I'm sure you are as tired of as I am. She is a strong Black woman, right? But the young Lady Danbury tells us the origin story, right? The journey to get there. Because Lady Danbury, it's almost like she's rebelling. That's the role that you play in the origin story. Tell us how you tackled that of her taking on these big themes, race relations, marriage, motherhood. How did you tackle Lady Danbury's rebellion? You know, I think it was a lot about focusing on where this need for rebellion came from. You know, in watching Bridgerton, she is all these things that you say, and I think there's something daunting about that, or there can be something worrying about that being, or feeding into the stereotype of the strong Black woman. And I think there was something really beautiful about the vulnerability that she starts out with. The fact that she has a very different mindset than her older counterpart. The fact that she is looking at the world around her with a bit of surrender. Um, and then it is something else that catalyzes that kind of change in her. So I think there is something so important about focusing on what those tipping moments are for characters and it's so fulfilling to be able to work through that for for Agatha because I think as somebody going through that tipping point myself it's almost therapeutic kind of having this character hold your hand as you go through a very similar moment in your own life. I love that the idea that the work and your personal life those paths sort of converging in a way, um, last summer I interviewed Viola Davis uh, right before The Woman King came out. Mm -hmm. And she told me that Naniska, the character that she played, taught her something deep about herself, about bravery and taking chances. What did Lady Denver teach you? What did you take? What do you keep with you? Like, what don't I, what didn't <laughs> I take? I she has this grounded understanding of self. And even, 
and it, it manifests in this way that like she recognizes how much she doesn't know about herself. And I think having that ability to clock that in your own story, to recognize the lack that you are struggling with and where you can fill that from, I think is something that I have been trying to steal from her because she has this maturity. There is something that is born out of so many years of struggle that she has as a woman during this time period that means that she's able to be way more matter of fact and way more honest with herself and with the scenarios that she finds herself in. And I think I've always wanted to have that because it's something that I see in my mother. It's something that I see in my grandmother, in my aunt. It's, It's something very familiar to me of women who've had to who have been forced into leadership roles. Um, mm. And that's definitely something that I've been trying to, to hone in on because it's that switching of your POV from like yourself and only what you're going through and sh- like widening that to every experience that could possibly be happening in this world. And how can the solution, you know, serve everybody rather than just my demographic. And I think that's something that she's been able to hone in on in a very big way. It's this like altruism in the very truest sense of the word. Self-awareness. I feel like that's a a buzzword we hear of often, but that is something that Lady Danbury absolutely embodies. And I also read that to prepare for the role, You read books by authors who you described as defiant Black women. And I love those three words. It sounds like an amazing book club. Someone take notes, invite me in. Um, Talk to me about those books. What were the books that you read and what did they teach you? Um, One, you're always invited to the book club. Please join us. Uh, Join me and myself and I. The books that I read uh, were, I think, books that I, I'm, I I came at this as as an academic, um, I think. And so I wanted to know intellectually, what is the foundation that Agatha already has that I maybe don't have because of the privilege that I've been able to live with. Um, And so that meant reading about um, yeah, about defiant Black women, about women who defy every structure um, in their in their communities. So it was the autobiography of Angela Davis. It was um, uh, Bell Hooks, Ain't I a Woman? All about love. Um, also by her, it was um, uh, oh. Now I'm already blanking. Um, Audrey Lord, Zami, um, mm. and uh, the entire collection of essays that I think was just put together by the very first time. I think titled Sister Outsider. Um, there was the Sex Life of African Women. Um, there's this really amazing scientific book called Bitch, um, which is about all of the female species. Um, in like the entire animal kingdom, which I found really, really just interesting for my own um, perspective. 
there was um, Vagabonds by Eloisa Osunde, which I was really interested in because it was an African perspective of um, and fictional about this group of of society that are considered vagabonds because they're not considered part of the main, you know, part of our community. They live in in the nighttime, those who are young girls, sex workers, trans, queer communities. And I think um I think these are the books that Agatha would have would have read as well. I mean I also read a lot of fiction. Tar Baby was by Toni Morrison was a book that I thought really told Agatha's story just in a different time period. Um, I also read Paradise by Toni Morrison. Um, Their Eyes Were Watching God was another one, Zora Neale Hurston's book, that really was a beautiful way of telling Agatha's story, I think, with different words and from a different lens that for me just added way more um, texture that I could then play with as an actor. That... I, I, my mind is blown right now. I hope people were taking notes because that is a deep syllabus uh, <laughs> defiant black women that we all need to be reading and should be on everyone's TBR to be read list. Um, all those books, if they, I don't already own them, I better. Uh, I am buying them. I want to touch on something you mentioned earlier about Lady Danbury's willingness to step into leadership roles because I thought that was so revolutionary. And specifically... There's this moment where she speaks to her pal, Queen Charlotte, about stepping up and responsibility. Um, We have a clip and we're going to take a look. Princess Augusta has asked me to cancel my ball. I do not understand how this relates to me. If Princess Augusta has... You are the queen. And this feels beneath you, but if you are not the queen... But I am. But if you are not, your life here would be very different. Do you not understand? You are the first of your kind. That opened doors so we are new. Do you not see us? What you are meant to do for us. I tell you to consummate. I tell you to become with child. I tell you to endure for a reason. You're so preoccupied with whether a man likes you. You're not some simpering girl. You are our queen. Your focus should be your country, your people, our side. I do not understand that you hold our fates in your hands. Your palace walls are too high, your majesty. What, there were so many things going on in this clip, but what I found really fascinating is the our side piece, right? And the explanation of the quote unquote great experiment, which from the mind of Shonda Rhimes leads us to this diverse alternative London in the Bridgerverse. Why do you think it was important to explain that to audiences, to provide that context of why you ha- we have black and brown members of the ton in Bridgerton? You know, personally for me, I thought it was really important, partially because I feel like there is something about a racially diverse utopia that we are not able to wrap our heads around just because of how racialized our world is. 
And there was, I think, in the response, a very exposing moment of showing how, in my honest opinion, how maybe superficial the progress is. And so it became, I think, a really fulfilling part of telling this story for me um, because it showed the struggle and the work that goes into creating equity like we see in Bridgerton. I mean, it feels as though we almost don't deserve to have that utopia unless we understand the work and effort and the fact that much like many civil rights movements, that work and effort is done by Black women. And to expose that felt much more rooted in this reality, it meant that it could be aspirational to be able to reach these levels of diversity are not something that is reserved for fantasy or our own imagination, but something that if we want, could be part of our day-to-day life. And I think it all goes back to like this idea of the tipping point. I was watching this really great um, lecture and now I've forgotten his name, Um, but he discusses the tipping point as this moment in history where we can decide whether we want to go forward or we go back into the cycle of ways that we've been repeating. And I think there's something really amazing about this season of Queen Charlotte and what it says about the great experiment and race, that it shows what happens when we as a community and society at a tipping point decide to change and not go back to engaging in the same cyclical, like, means of destruction. Um, So yeah, for me, it was extremely fulfilling. It meant that the work had something more than just being, you know, really well-written stories. It meant that it was applicable in ways that um that are quite timely um and also sadly very universal i think what you're talking about which i find so fascinating is impact right and it seems like in your personal story your career path impact is critical to you especially when we consider that you were on a completely different path Before this, you have your master's in public health from Yale University. Talk to us about that pivot, because I think it was about impact, right? Why did you think you could have more impact on the screen or stage as opposed to in the health space? I think it was a twofold um, come to Jesus moment uh, where I had entered into the public health space because I had been taught that this was the way that you make impact. I, you know, grew up in sub-Saharan Africa. So a lot of the chat was, you know, how do we curb malaria? How do we curb HIV and AIDS? How do we curb tuberculosis? Um, And then uh, the entire continent would be lifted out of poverty. And so hearing this kind of, um, this being the, or what I thought at the time would be the 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 key into unlocking equity for Africa and Africans all, all across the diaspora. I realized that throughout public health that if I'm not happy with what I do, 
And then on top of that, I'm bogged down by policy and bureaucracy. And I'm an impatient person. Then none of the things that I touch will ever be impactful because I'm not going to love it. Um, and I'm not going to even want to have the endurance to stick with it through. I'm just going to give up and become a cog in a very, very, very massive, big, um, big machine, uh, especially with what's happening with pharma and everything. It just, I was like, I need to focus on something that not only fills me, but then through it filling me, I fill someone else's cup. Um, and it was when I recognized that I, a lot of the damage that had been done to me and my relationship with anti-blackness, with my relationship with the black parts of myself, all of my, all of me is black, but with, in relationship with me and loving myself as a black woman, I recognized a lot of that damage had been done by media. Uh, and a lot of the things that I'd read and watched. Um, and so it's like, if I go back and go and engage in this field that I love already, I'd grown up uh, doing this in, you know, after school activities. If I can do this, excuse me, <clears throat> do this in a field that I love, in a very impactful space, in a space where I also had what I believe to be more agency than in the public health space, then why not do that? Um, so yeah, that was kind of what was the shift. I'd also been scared, you know, fear of failure is something that can really, really run your life. Uh, and I had to, to also clock that in myself, that that was the reason why I didn't want to engage with acting until when I did. And you talk about fear. I mean, we're saying what you learned from Lady Danbury, and I'm sure it is acting in spite of fear, right? In spite of the fear of failure. I feel like we can all take that from Lady Danbury's character. Um, I have two more questions. Uh, you have said that you are not an activist, just yeah. empathic. What do you mean by that? Oh, gosh. You know, <laughs> I, 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 what I mean is like, I don't feel like I can, own the term activist. I think what I am is, I just, it's, if I see someone in pain, how can I not engage with what's causing them pain? Like, how can I not alleviate that if I can? And so I think what it is, is I would say I'm just like an active member of society potentially, or maybe, I feel like if we all worked, maybe, it's such a, there are people who deserve the term activist because I think they are active in a lot of ways of their life. They're, everything about how they live is for the fight of the betterment of humanity, if not our planet. and. I believe that I am an actor. I That is where my love is. That is how my, the way that I channel a lot of maybe how I feel for the world. And I think with the amount of access we have to knowledge, how can we be silent 
it just, it, for me, it doesn't make sense <laughs> because if there is a genocide happening with, in refugee camps in China, why should I not say something? If, if there's a civil war being painted as something other than that, why not say something just to bring conversation into the public space. I mean, I find life way more interesting if I engage in every aspect of it. And that also comes with privilege. I think I've watched my parents over dinner talk about politics um, in Nigeria. And so being around those types of conversations that are more on the macro level has always just been normal to me. I've watched my parents care about countries they've never even been to because it's a human to human connection. And I think there's something so beautiful in making that like the focus. And I think there's something way more fulfilling for me personally when that is the result that I'm working towards in everything that I do. Because when I die, I die. Everything dies with me. But if I'm able to work for something outside of me, then I could die any day, uh, now, tomorrow, and I would still feel happy because I've not been working something that's solely for me. It's something that I will never complete. So as long as I'm working for it, it's I'm rambling, but as long as I'm working for it, it means that this experience in life is is worth something, at least to me. That wasn't a ramble, okay? <laughs> it was not a ramble at all. And this last question, it ties into all of this because you talk about being an active member of society, civic engagement, the conversations about politics you were having with your parents. We're entering into the next presidential election. We've got about a year and a half. There are so many issues on the table, gun control, reproductive health, the banning of books, uh, books that would be in our Defiant Black Woman book club, which we are creating after this, uh, come see us. Um, <laughs> what do you say, what, what is your message to young people in who might feel unheard and who might not feel the, the pull to be civically engaged. What is your message to them? Oh gosh. Uh, it's a big one. It is, um, mostly because I'm thinking of myself younger and how disengaged I was um you know I there's honestly I what I would say is um, <laughs> I have to be very careful it's such a tough question because I I don't I don't have that answer. There is something really, really difficult about being engaged when there are so many issues to fight against. And that can be so exhausting, even when you are 
extremely engaged. I mean, you were listing off things and I'm like, right, I have to, I have to remember to read up on that and, you know, remember what's going on on that and, and that, and, and I think in reality, like there's no way to really galvanize somebody to be engaged civically. It has to be something that organically comes out. And it's usually when you're in a very difficult spot, like your rights have been taken away from you or the rights of someone you love has been taken away from you. And because of that, you have now been, you, you have no other option but to be engaged. And so I guess I would say, don't let it come to that where you find yourself in a very tough position specifically like when it comes to guns because that's something that you may not even have in your control whether or not somebody has a gun near you but rather than wait till it comes to that till the, to the trauma that then catalyzes you to engagement i think get on the front foot of it all like there's so much information that we're, we don't know and the only way to stop that is to go and look for it yourself. So I think that that is all I, I could say honestly um, with my chest. Yeah. Say it with your chest. Uh, that's a perfect place to leave it. Honestly, go out and look for it. Don't wait for it to come to you. An excellent message. Arsema Thomas, thank you so much for joining us on Washington Post Live. Thank you so, so much for having me. I love this conversation. And up next, we are going to continue the conversation Arsema and I were having about young voters and political engagement. So joining me to expand the discussion is congressional reporter Camilla DeShalis and deputy politics editor for NextGen, Brianna Tucker. Brianna and Camilla, thank you for joining me. Hi, so nice to be here and engage in this very important and potent discussion, especially as we get closer to 2024. Excellent, and great to have you both. So let's dive in because there's a lot to get to. First, I want to, for us to define what the youth vote is, the young voter. These are words we're going to hear repeated constantly over the next year and a half. I would like to consider myself a young voter. I know I am not. So Brianna, tell us, who is the young voter? What is that demographic? Right. So you have uh, two terms that you should think of when you think of a young voter, which is millennials and Gen Z. Um, some people identify in like the elder millennial uh, section, but you also have Gen Z that has not been voting for very long. That's your cohort that's born from 1997 to 2012. Um, they are having the same kind of entry points to trauma and world events, but these are also voters who may not have been uh, present for 9-11. Uh, um, and you also have millennial, younger millennial voters who are considered the young voter subgroup. Um, these are also people who were there possibly voting in between the Obama and Trump administrations, um, have also witnessed different traumas in their lifetime, and uh, are kind of the, the last uh, flip in ideology when it comes excuse me, when it comes to um, where we'll see the generational gaps in voting. And Brianna, tell me, I wanna stick with you, tell me about the issues that are most pivotal to them. If you had to look at a crystal ball, I don't think you need a crystal ball. You have done the reporting, you've seen the reporting. What are the issues that are pivotal, 
pivotal to that demographic. Right. Um, a lot of issues are are pivotal, and I think the, especially right now we're seeing gun violence. You know, the right to have safety in public places, um, safety from school shootings. We're seeing abortion access, reproductive rights, particularly with younger women. We're also thinking about, um, you know, what voters are saying when it comes to um, the education bans that we're seeing on books specifically, climate change especially. This is going to be something that this generation cares very deeply about, student loan relief, what kind of economic security that they can have. Um, as a younger millennial, a lot of people were there to see the recessions and how that kind of impacted job security um, in their early 20s. And so they're thinking about these issues. They're very much a driven values-based voters. Um, and it, it really matters how parties are going to cater to their messages and align those values. Okay, so basically every crucial issue is an issue that is crucial to a young voter. Camilla, I want to talk to you about engagement, right? We are 18 months out. Are young voters invested right now in the next election cycle? I mean, a lot of voters, particularly younger voters, want to see what candidates will do for them on these issues. Brianna talked about climate change, immigration, gun reform. These are all things that, depending on the outcome of the next election, will actually impact it. So that's just something that they're kind of looking at. There's a lot of coalitions that are just engaging with younger voters, trying to get their temperature check of what they care about, things that they want to see for candidates. But this is something that every candidate that's running for office needs to keep in mind. And that is, how do you galvanize younger voters to come out and support you? Where do you stand on certain policy shifts that will make an impact in the years to come? And Camilla, I also want to ask you, we're talking about age. Um, I'm going to date myself. You know, I remember when Aaliyah's age ain't nothing but a number came out. Uh, but Joe Biden, our president currently, who is seeking a second term in the White House, is the oldest president elected. Is his age going to be an issue for young voters? Does it give them pause? So my colleagues actually did extensive story about this and when they went out across the country and they talked to a lot of young voters and i think something that's paramount that i have even seen when i'm talking to a lot of groups whether it's college groups to coalitions that are just about politics and young voters is that it is a factor but not necessarily the defining factor of why they're going to support him and or not it's really about where he stands in certain policies and making sure that things that he said when he was running for office in 2020 is going to stand true in 2024 or even in that if he's going to fulfill some of the campaign and promises that he originally made. I think that's going to be the biggest factor. Age is something that has been brought up that some young voters do feel like they want to see more representation that the candidates that are running not are not necessarily aligned with some of their views or they would prefer what they say new blood to be more on the ballot. But at this day and age, you know, I've talked to a lot of lawmakers and I asked them that question about his age and whether that's going to be a defining factor. And they just said, this is a thing. In the next upcoming presidential election, even in the congressional races, the pivotal point that's going to be is where do they actually stand on these issues and can they get legislation passed on these issues? And so you want to make sure that the lawmakers that you're electing into office are aligned with some of the views or some of the policies that you want to see. That's going to be the most important part. And it's almost another testament as well that young voters is not just elect them in office but they're going to be holding these candidates feet to the fire and say hey we put you in office now we want to see you make good on some of the promises that you said that you were going to do 
Okay, so issues, 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 promises, promises, promises. Um, Brianna, I want to ask you about the rest of the 2024 candidates. How do you think they are going to engage this demographic? How are they going to pull in the quote-unquote youth vote? Uh, well, I can tell you what they probably should be doing, which is paying attention to this younger cohort. They are going to make up almost 40% of the voting block in 2024. That's the expected uh, or at least the prediction for that year. And so a lot of that comes down to not just what your messaging is, but what your values are also going to be. And so on the Republican side, we know that we're getting and we're seeing younger candidates, diverse candidates. We see Vivek Ramaswamy, we see Nikki Haley, we see DeSantis, who's also young for a presidential contender himself. But are those values going to be aligned with the Gen Z cohort, with younger millennial cohorts? Um, and so far, it's it's not something that we're seeing in reporting. It's not something that um, even our reporters have heard on the campaign trail as far as being engaged. Um, those things don't tend to really align. Um, we're also thinking that you know th this could really just drive a further wedge between that party if Republicans do continue to kind of double down on their messaging and they are continuing to cater to the base of the Republican Party, which is older white voters. Um, it's it's only going to drive a further wedge between younger voters, younger independent voters, potentially even you know just younger swing voters or maybe intermediate voters. But um, on the Democratic side as well. Uh, like Camila said, when it comes to Biden doing his job, it's not necessarily about age for younger voters. Um, the extensive reporting that we've done shows that a lot of it is whether or not they can make good on those promises, whether or not Biden might make good on those promises. Um, and some of those things have been held up by court rulings or congressional action. Um, but for most people, it's really, you know, is he representative of their generation uh, versus their grandparents' generation? Um, longevity in office as well. Will he make it through another four years? Um, cognitively, or at least kind of, kind of pushing for the same things that they want. And another thing I want to talk about specifically is social media, right? When people think young people, they think social media. And when we think social media and young people, we think TikTok. Camila, you've done a lot of reporting on the tension between TikTok and politicians, you know, I, I think we talked before about the TikTok hearings on the Hill. Talk to me about what you found in your reporting about how politicians are going to use TikTok, how important they think it is for their campaigns and what are their pros and cons? Well, there's two sides of this debate. For months, several lawmakers have been calling to completely ban the app in the U.S. While there is still a small portion of lawmakers saying that's just not necessarily the answer. You have Democratic lawmakers like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who said that it is an effective tool of how she uses she has her own TikTok, but she also has Instagram and how social media has become one of the social platforms where they can really effectively message out their campaign and talk to voters. It's 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 more access to really amplifying some of your messages. And I've talked to congressional candidates and they've said the same thing that if for someone who doesn't have a lot of money and that really just wants to effectively communicate what policies that they want to put out if they were in office, social media is just one of those tools where you can really connect with with readers, with viewers, tell them about your policies, you know, message them back and forth, really get a dialogue going in a in a space where you can really effectively kind of communicate the policies that you want to see put forth. So for some people, they say this, especially a potential ban, could have 
big implications for 2024 and the upcoming elections because you're taking essentially if this ban is passed, then that social media app or maybe others that could be in jeopardy, it's taking away from just another platform that congressional candidates could really engage with other people. Interesting. So obviously the platform is a way for those candidates who might not have millions in the bank and they're sending out all the mailers or the commercials. It's a way for them to reach out directly to their constituency. That's really interesting. Uh, I want to also talk about, I'm going to read this because I want to make sure I get it right. And this is for you, Brianna. In the 2022 midterms, one in eight voters were under 30 and half of them supported Democratic candidates. Okay. I wanted to read that, make sure I got that completely correct. That is is correct. there a partisan flag planted on the youth vote for 2024? Um, I think really the partisan flag that people point out is that most of Gen Z, like Gen Z is more diverse. They are def obviously younger. They are going to be the most educated generation to come. They are starkly different than the Gen X, the baby boomers that we're seeing. And so this partisan divide and this kind of generational gap that we're seeing is more so translating into a more diverse America. Um, and a lot of the current events that we've seen that they've grown through as well tend to be aligned with democratic values or liberal values. And that one in eight, the one in eight, I'm sorry that you said under, under 30 um, yeah. for the election, that is also a product of, of what they've seen. Um, and so I wouldn't necessarily count that as the, like the partisan gap that we're seeing, it's true. Um, I think that there's still going to be a Gen Z Republican cohort, conservative cohort that wants to see Republicans um, align with their message, al align with their values, um, that wants to see maybe more um, leniency or um, a, a spectrum of laws when it comes to abortion um, and different other like conservative values. But at the same time, Predominantly, Gen Z and younger generations, they are increasingly voting with Democrats. They are increasingly becoming more liberal, um, but they also tend to be a lot more values-based and want to know as much as they can about politics, want to know about the candidates. They want to be informed. Um, and a lot of that just does not line with the Republican Party at this point. And Camilla, sort of the same question, but phrased in a little bit of a different way. So is engagement with the youth vote, is that becoming a critical issue for both Republicans and Democrats equally? It's something that both sides are thinking about, but whether there's effective messaging around a lot of the policies that young voters care about, that's another issue. I've talked to several Democratic lawmakers about what their thoughts are about student debt, about gun reform, about immigration, and they're very aware of how much young voters care about this and making sure that they they put around their messaging around young voters and what they would actually do if they were in office. On the other hand, I've talked to several Republican lawmakers and asked them that question about whether their messaging around certain issues like student debt will have may deter young voters from voting for them. And their messaging hasn't just has been kind of across the board and just saying, well, you know, we're ensuring that 
the future economy is better so that they don't have debt. And it, it's a little bit more slighted and saying, well, they have a responsibility. If they took out the loan, then they need to pay it back. Where Democrats messaging around that issue of student debt is a little bit more, um, it's a little bit more forgiving in the sense of, well, let's make sure we can fix the problem and here are solutions that we find it. Whereas their response is a little bit across the board and indifferent in that sense. So I think both sides need to start thinking about young voters, but whether to take their policies into consideration and whether that can actually craft while they're thinking about young voters, I think that's something that we kind of see in the differences where Democrats have a little bit more messaging around that, whereas Republicans are still kind of working to shape that narrative. And Brianna, you're going to have the last word. Uh, big question, how crucial is the youth vote going to be in 2024? It's so crucial. Um, I think everything that we talked about today from just engagement on both sides, um, touching base with this group, really listening to them, really making sure that not just the values are aligning with different voters, but also the messaging is getting there um, on the ground. You are reaching into communities, universities, diverse constituencies across America that are going to be voting, that will be eligible to vote. Um, and I think like we've seen in the midterms in 2022, that was a record year for midterm turnout, especially you know, this not, is not a four-year presidential election as usual, but we saw how the youth vote could make a difference. We saw how in Wisconsin, uh, youth voters really helped make a difference to elect a liberal Supreme Court judge um, that essentially helped protect abortion and reproductive care in the state. And so um, aside from the, the many wins that Democrats were able to glean from 2022, I think that in 2024, it's just going to be uh, prolific and, and entirely essential for both parties. It would do them both well to pay attention to this group, engage with this, engage with this group. Um, presidential campaigns should be building their, their, uh, their messaging, um, their, their machines right now to connect with them and really listen to what issues they are most concerned about and their solutions. We are going to leave it there. Pay attention, engage, listen. Um, a, a great message. The youth vote. Three words we're going to hear on repeat for the next year and a half. Camilla and Brianna, thank you for digging into that with us. Thank you for joining us on Washington Post Live. Thank you. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.